So this past week, my 11-year-old said to me, in a moment of wisdom and composure, I shouldn't always get mad when I don't get my way. And I was so tempted to be like, "Uh uh-huh. But I had a moment of non-hypocritical clarity, where instead I said to her, yeah, it's not easy to know what to do with our emotions in which situation, right? Because if I'm at all, if I'm even close to honest, you know, how do I do with my emotions? Not controlling them either. You keep expecting me to say control emotions. I keep expecting me to say that, but just deal with them. Be a human being who has emotions and knows how to do life in the midst of them. How do you do with emotions? Did you catch that you're invited to a wedding this afternoon? Um, did some premarital preparation with Aylin and Andrew. And one of the things that uh, I do with young couples and older couples who are getting married, we talk through how we learned to do the emotions. How did you do? Mad, sad, glad, and scared with your family, with your friends, other people that you've dated. How do you experience it in culture? And, and a couple things happen every time as they tell stories to one another. And I sit there. One, there's usually a story that, that uh, is more intense than they realized. And then there's another place where they they don't know. They don't know how their friends did this specific emotion because they didn't ever do it. What about you? What do you do with your emotions in prayer? And generally. Do you know how to do mad, sad, glad, scared? What does it mean to do them well? Do you try and control them? Do you just let them out? I was looking at my books this morning in my pastor study, and there are so many on emotions, you know, labeling them, experiencing them, praying them, how to be in relationship with another human and be full of the emotions that humans are full of. One of the things that's so wonderful about the Psalms is that not only if you pray the psalm that the, of the day, so today is November 12th, so you pray Psalm 12 and Psalm 42 and Psalm 72 and 102 and 132, which we're looking at today. Not only if you do that will you experience the range of emotions, but you'll notice a little bit like we sang to our own soul, there's a redirection, especially for our emotions that are more disorienting and unsettling. The Psalms not only help us pray, the Psalms not only pray us, they teach us how we can reorient ourselves on things that are true. And again, I think that the way to do that is learn to pray angry and happy and ugly. And there are some days that our prayers won't get reoriented. There are some prayers that just end in darkness. Because that is the kind of day, week, year, or even longer season that we're having. How wonderful that that's modeled in the scriptures. Did you know that Psalm 88 ends with the words, darkness is my closest friend? Not very encouraging unless that's God coming alongside us in the Psalms to tell us when we're experiencing life that way, we pour that out to God with the full expectation that he takes that seriously. Psalm 132 is a psalm of reorientation. 
where we trust the psalm to accept us as we are and to reorient us to true things and to true Father. The way that that's going to happen in Psalm 132 is through memory of things that actually happened. It's a very historically uh, anecdotal psalm. Some of those things will be past us. Some of them are hard to pronounce. Some of them we actually, we, we know more about the story of God than the psalmist. If you have your Bible, I'm going to look at Psalm 132. A psalm of reorientation on the Lord and His covenant. Remember, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. They had lost the Ark of the Covenant. You know what the Ark of the Covenant is? Like Raiders of the Lost Ark? Um, right? That Ark. That's not what the Ark does, if you've seen the movie, but that's that Ark. Picking up in verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. You ever feel like doing, like, mouth exercises? The Old Testament. You could do worse than just learning to read and say these words. Ephrathah. So they were in Ephrathah when they heard of the Ark. I know that because it says, We heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will close with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will close with, clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. Do you know how to interact? Do you know how to prayerfully remember your story in light of God's story in prayer? The psalmist is remembering the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7 and remembering their own story and allowing it to reorient them to things that are true. Do you know how to do that, especially in prayer? To remember the things that you understand about your past and the things you don't understand about your past and set them in the midst of God's story. God's story is that he made the world and called it good. Men and women rebelled against him. Sin enters the world. Jesus came and redeemed those who call him Lord. And he will come back and make all things new. So we're in between stages three and four of God's story. Do you know how to take the pieces of your own life and remember them in the midst of his story? That's what the Psalms teach us to do. 
express the full range of how we experience life. Remember our own circumstances, loved ones, enemies, seasons of joy, seasons of discontent. In the midst of his promises and story. I love living in Connecticut. I love being pastor of the barn. Although it's almost too big, so you can't join if you're a new member. I'm kidding. But I do like knowing everybody, and it's too many. There's too many of you for me to know everybody. So good thing we have great greeters. Anyway, I love living here. I make maple syrup. I harvest my pear tree. I have been picking up uh, pine cones, and I Googled this a couple times, and to study, you can burn pine cones without it being too much. You know, you can't burn pine inside, but you can burn pine cones. Very excited about this. I love living here. But when I moved here, it was disorienting, because this is very far from where all of my family and friends live, except one brother lived in New York, and then he promptly moved. Ugh, that's frustrated. <laughs> and so when I would get up in the morning and go, oh, I live in Connecticut. I would remind myself of the story. I'm from Oklahoma. God calls me to himself. He begins drawing me into the ministry before I knew it, by the way. We end up working at a church in St. Louis where we had no family, where we made many friends. I remember how Rachel and I decided what uh, kind of church we thought would be a good fit in terms of size. Looked at different denominations. Didn't really apply in very many, but we looked at different ones. We wanted it to be a good fit personality-wise. We don't mind that our relatives have to fly instead of drive, though that makes us sad. All that's okay. But what I would have to do for about a year is remind myself of the story. How did we come to realize that uh, I wanted to lead a church? And I would remember that story. How did we come to realize we were going to leave Riverside Church that I had served for 12 years? I would remind myself of the story. And what would happen in my heart is it would ease a little. That doesn't mean the next day I was just like, woohoo, it's really cold and great, you know, <laughs> and beautiful and not too hot and all that, you know. But my heart would ease as I remember the story. Do you know how to do that? Take your story, set it in the midst of God's story. Remember that he's a good father. That because of the work of Christ, we're reconciled to him. That we have him and he has us. That we have the Holy Spirit in the midst of our circumstances. Psalms of reorientation are where we remember the promises of God in the midst of our own story. Do we ever feel, do you ever feel knotted up? You know? like a shoelace or a rope? How do we as humans unravel that? How do we untie it? How do we learn to take a breath and cast our anxieties on Him? One way is by casting our anxieties on Him. But I think doing that in light of our story and His story is what the Psalms teach us to do. It's fine for me to quote multiple places in the New Testament which says, cast your anxieties on him. How? Tell our story and understand it in light of his story. So the old story, in this case of the Ark of the Covenant being recovered, reminds us of the covenant. The Ark is in Ja'ar. They heard 
about it in Ephrathah. This is in the midst of in the midst of God's story. This is creation and fall. Those have happened, but redemption has not happened yet. And so the people are still leaning on the covenants that that God made, which are still in effect, by the way. Um, but they don't know about the new covenant yet, because it hasn't happened. Um, so they're remembering the covenant that God made with Adam. Adam broke. God makes a covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and then with David. So referencing that one. You and I live in the New Covenant. Jesus references it regularly. It's from Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. So covenant is a deal, right? So God says to Adam, you can live in Eden, but don't eat from that tree, right? Adam breaks the deal. It's called the covenant of life. The world gets very, 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 very wicked. God chooses to destroy that. Makes a covenant with Noah. You and I still see that covenant. The rainbow in the sky. God promising to never do that again. God makes a covenant with Abraham. You read Genesis 12. Abraham goes out and he looks up at the stars and God says, this is how many kids you're going to have. And Abraham's already kind of old. He's a little disoriented by that. Do you know that's us? We're those stars. We're those children brought into faith because of God's pursuing love. God makes a covenant with Moses. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's referenced regularly in the Old Testament. And it's important for us to know, to the extent that we can, memory-wise, know the story of God's pursuit of his people. And it's really important that we not treat these as metaphors. This is something that I long to do because, frankly, it makes for a better sermon. If I'm like, so the Red Sea of your life is before you and God's going to part it and you're going to walk just like Moses. But that's not how the Bible presents the story. And I'm so glad that chariots are not chasing you. People with spears and swords. The Bible presents that as having happened. As a story that you and I notice to know God's covenanting love. You and I are not Adam, though we live in the world that is cursed because he broke the covenant. You and I are not Noah. We will not deal with a flood like that. Though we see the promise that God made with Noah, with the rainbow, that he will not ever again destroy the earth. You and I are not Abraham. We will not ever be tested like Abraham was. Have you read Genesis 22? Holy smokes. You and I are not Moses, though the covenant that God made with him still blesses us. That's the law of God. You and I are not David. You do not have a Goliath in your life who's trying to kill you. That story is used metaphorically. Here's the thing. As a metaphor, you and I are the Israelites. We're scared because there's this nine foot man with this giant spear. And there's a representative king who goes out and stands for us in battle. You don't need the five smooth stones to figure out your life. What you and I learn is to trust the king that goes and steps in front of the real giant, which is sin and death. I would love to preach that. I really would. It would take some real growth for me because I'm kind of like, I, I talk like I preach. So it would take some real growth for me to be like, so the Goliath in your life is this 
and here are the five smooth stones, and, but I, I think I could do it. Except that the Bible doesn't teach me that that's why those stories happened. The Bible actually teaches that they really happened. So that you and I can see God's pursuing story. There is a big story. You and I are drawn into it, and that's deeply encouraging. Don't shortchange it by trading it for a metaphor. Not just because the Bible encourages us not to treat it that way. Not just because all those things really happen, but also because those metaphors won't last. You label a bad season in your life as though it's like a Bible story. Later, the interpretation of that's just going to break down. I love um, Indiana Jones because he's brave and funny. And you know it was really hot that day and he was going to have this whole sword fight. And instead, he pulled out his gun and just shot the guy. And I want to show this because even, even though in the scheme of Indiana Jones, the Ark is just one of many magical things around the world, it reminds us like these things really exist. These, things, these stories really happened. So we're just going to do a little reset. Uh, you're going to see some clip art in this old trailer. Just enjoy that. Remember when the times were simpler with movie trailers? Like a little clip art at the end. That's what it looked like to me, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And here's the thing. I think that sometimes when we approach, especially a book like the Psalms, we hear reference to the Ark and we think of it as this nice religious metaphor, and it wasn't. The story of how the Ark got to be lost 
is a really awkwardly painful story for both the Israelites and for the Philistines. The story of how it's recovered is imperfect. It's a story of real people uh, engaging God as best they can. I mean, some of the things that, ha- that are said in the Psalms, like in Psalm 132, is that the Lord needs a place to rest. Is that true? No. But is that how they understood the need to build a temple? I'm not saying the Bible's not true. I'm just saying that's expressive poetic language. And the reason that it's significant for you and I, that it reminds us of the pursuing heart of God. The old story reminds us of the covenant. So this old story from Psalm 132, hearing about the ark in Ephrathah, recovering it in the fields of Jar and bringing it back to Israel, is a story of blessing. The reason I say that is sometimes when we talk about, especially the Old Testament, it just really sounds like us versus them. It really sounds like the point is God rescuing a people in order to just be about them. And that was never the goal. It was never the story, and it's reflected here in the psalm. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with, clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. Then I'll make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. God is creating a nation 3,000 years ago that is to bless everyone that comes into contact with it. First reference are the poor. Then reference are the priests. What Joseph mentioned in the, Joseph our elder, mentioned in the prayers is something that they didn't even know, which is that all of us are called to be priests. That's how Peter describes it. And then, what does he describe you and I? Did you catch that twice in Psalm 132? How are the people who choose to follow God described? Saints. This is one of the words that I think is most differently defined by our culture than the way the Bible defines it. Sometimes it's an expectation of religious people that they behave better than irreligious people. Sometimes it's sort of the opposite in the 21st century. For me, I always think of a saint as someone who talks slow. Because they're so kind all the time. And that's very saintly to be kind with your words all the time. Listen, that's wrong. The Bible describes a saint as one whom God has pursued. Almost all the letters in the New Testament describe the members of those individual churches as saints. Why? Because of how they acted? No. Have you read 1 Corinthians? Their actions were not very saintly the way you and I would esteem it. And yet here's this language. Twice in Psalm 132, calling those who follow God saints. Why? Because he loves us and calls us that. Because his pursuing love is what reconciles us to him and grows us up. Are you comfortable being called a saint? I'm not. Even though I'm a pastor and have been a Christian for a long, long, long time. And yet that's what God calls us. And so when we return to the Psalms, we not only are expressing life as we actually experience it, we're, real, we're remembering or realizing or perhaps learning for the first time how God sees us because of his pursuing love. If we call him Lord, he calls us saint. That's how much he loves us.
This is God's heart amidst the wreckage of our own story. Even amidst the wreckage of the story for the Israelites. Having lost the ark. They lost the ark of the covenant. A pretty important artifact. Though it does not do what... It's not a radio to God or whatever he said. Like, let's be clear about that. But, at the same time, they did treat it in the movie... In some ways, the way that scripture encourages them to treat it. They carried it on sticks outside of itself, you know. Anyway, so there's some historical accuracy to it. God's heart amidst the wreckage. So the Israelites lose the Ark of the Covenant, which both causes them problems and the Philistines problems. And yet, in the midst of remembering that story, they're also remembering that God's pursuing love is to be a blessing to them and to the nations. So he calls them saints. He reminds them to take care of the poor. He reminds them that this is an... This is how we're filled with joy is in following him. The old story reminds us of the covenant which is a blessing and which lasts. The reason I keep mentioning the other covenants is not because I think that you need to go to the five-hour class that I went to on covenant theology, though it was really interesting and good. Let me just tell you. But because you and I know of a new covenant. Jeremiah describes it as us receiving a new heart. Ezekiel, that's in chapter 31. Ezekiel describes it this way. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So a covenant is an agreement between two people, and yet all the activity is God's. For us to fully love and appreciate and understand the Psalms, we need the rest of the Bible. You see, the writer of Psalm 132 was encouraged because they understood that God called them saints and they understood that God loved and liked them and wanted to bless them through following Him, but they didn't know about the new covenant. Not really. They knew a little bit about it. That's why they say David's son will be on the throne forever. That's all this horn talk towards the end of it. But they didn't know as much as you and I know. You and I know that the new transaction with God is not the covenant with Adam, the covenant of life, it's not the covenant with Noah. Those, all, all those covenants still exist. It's the covenant where he takes out our old heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Some of you are disoriented by the story of David who comes up a lot in the Bible. You know why his story comes... Or it, it's disorienting for all kinds of reasons. If you know the story of David, you know that he did a lot of glorious, wonderful things. You also know he was a little bit shady. Right? You know that. And part of the reason that we know so many mistakes he made is we actually know more about David than we know about any other character in the Bible. Which is cool, except there's a lot of violent and destructive things. And the reason that that's important is not because I want you to either like or dislike David. I don't actually care a lot about that. I want you to see that you and I need a better David. David is a type of whom Christ is the fulfillment. A representative king who stands in front of us against the enemy of of, uh, sin and death does battle with those enemies and defeats them. And yet, we still live in the in-between time. So what the Psalms teach us to do is not only express all of our emotions to God, but teach us to tell our story in light of His story. His story Creation and fall. And then uh, redemption. That's the work of Christ. And then we're waiting for Christ to come back and call all things new. 
Our story is where we were born. How we have experienced life. When we knew that God pursued us. Perhaps that's a new part of your story. Perhaps you're just beginning to learn that. And we express all that back to Him in prayer. Both His story and our story combined. That's what the Psalms mentor us to do and to be. And will in fact do it for us if we pray them, just let them pray us. The good news inferred and and implied in Psalm 132 is that God loves us. But because of the work of Christ, that heir of David that the Psalm 132 author talks about, because of that we're reconciled to God. And because of the Holy Spirit we have peace even now, even as we wait for Him to come back and make all things new. But God is not only gracious in saving us and drawing us to Himself. God is also gracious in coming alongside us through the Psalms, teaching us how to talk to Him in the midst of all of our emotions, teaching us how to talk to Him in the way we actually experience life, teaching us to reorient our own soul on His good news through prayer, through song, through conversation, remembering that He is a good Father. That because of the work of Christ, we can be in relationship with Him. And that because of the Holy Spirit, we can have peace even amidst the wreckage of the world. And even as we wait on Him to return. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that our stories and our emotions are not too much for you. I thank you that you have made us this way, even as you have allowed the world uh, to remain broken. Father, we thank you for giving us language in song and in prayer, for returning to you, for reminding our own souls of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Father, teach us how to do that in corporate community here, in our individual prayer lives, in our minds and hearts. Teach us to speak to our soul about your Father heart, about the work of your Son, and about the Holy Spirit.